And if you haven't yet, feel free to turn in your Bibles to the 27th Psalm, Psalm 27. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, open the eyes of our heart so that we might see and hear you and be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you noticed that Psalm 27 begins in a place called fear. Actually, it begins with a boast about God. That the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? But, but in the background of this boast are, are dark places. Dark places which strike fear in the most courageous of hearts. Like a battlefield with arrows flying and swords flashing and men falling. Verses 2 and 3. So, so let me ask you. Have you ever been in a place called fear? I guess that's like asking whether you're a member of the human race. And some of those moments of fear, once we've had them, we remember them like they were yesterday. I mean, jumping out of my skin as a bolt of lightning struck a tree 50 yards from our camping trailer, shaking it when I was a 10-year-old boy. Or losing our precious two-year-old daughter in the streets of London. I mean, one minute she's looking at the displays in the windows of Hamley's toy store, and the next she's gone. And I'm, I'm running up the sidewalk, pushing people aside, shouting, Sarah, Sarah! She's nowhere to be found. We're desperately swimming in the waters of the Zambezi River in Zimbabwe, trying to get to my wife and pull her ashore as a hippo opens his jaws and brings them down, crashing upon our canoe. I'm telling you the truth, that really happened. <laughs> I mean, those are moments I will never forget. But fear comes in many shapes and sizes. I mean, yes, there's the fear of bodily harm or losing someone you love. But, but there's also the fear of not having enough, not being secure. The, the fear that I won't be able to pay my bills or, or, or provide for the future. The, the fear that I might lose my job or having just lost it. I may not be able to secure something that, that pays adequately. And then there's the fear of not being loved. The, the fear that my friends will turn against me or my spouse will leave me. The fear that I'm not smart enough or attractive enough or good enough to be accepted and admired by those who really matter. The, the fear that if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. They couldn't love me. And then there's the fear of failure. I mean, in 1990, that fear sent me into my first ex real experience of depression. I'd taken my young family overseas to pursue my dream of a PhD at Cambridge University. And in order to do that, we, we spent our life savings. But, but I wasn't going to make it. Or at least I was afraid 
I wasn't going to be able to finish. And I began to slip into a real depression. And there are other fears. The, the fear of growing old and losing our capabilities. The, the fear of dying. The, the fear of your children losing their faith or your society losing its moral moorings or your country losing its grip on freedom. I mean, fear is one of the great driving motivations of life. I mean, yes, we are driven by our hungers, our desires, but also by our fears. And fear has a sister. Her name is worry. And worry is not quite as intense as fear. It's more like a constant, constant drip rather than a surging flood. But, but at the root of worry is the feeling of fear. So it's quite a declaration David makes in these opening lines, isn't it? The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. <laughs> I mean, how would you like to be able to make a boast like that? Now, I must admit that the first few times I read this psalm, I was puzzled by it. I mean, it seems to have two different, almost unrelated themes. I mean, the first one, fear, is taken up in the very first verse, and it's the clear focus of the next two. But then in verse 4, the subject seems to change rather abruptly. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. And suddenly the psalm is about worship. It's about seeking the face of God and gazing upon the beauty of God and, and dwelling in the house of God all the days of our life. It's about the one thing David wants and David seeks more than anything else. And the subject of fear almost seems to disappear, but not quite. Because upon closer examination, we realize the subject has never really changed. David is singing about protection from his enemies and shelter in times of trouble all the way through this psalm. In fact, the distinguishing characteristic and the defining mark of this psalm is the intertwining of two perhaps unrelated themes, human fear and the face of God. So, so much so that you could outline this psalm under two headings, the, the fears we face and the face that overcomes our fears. See the surprising thing? The truly revolutionary thing about Psalm 27 is that David, this seasoned warrior, takes us not onto the battlefield, but into the temple to teach us how to face our fears. Verse four, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I continually seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe. And then verse eight, to you, O my heart, God has said, seek my face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. 
I mean, to seek. What is it? It's to pursue diligently. It's to hunt for something. And it implies both a deep desire and disciplined effort. I mean, you seek what you really, really want, and you are willing to sacrifice to gain it. In other words, you treasure it. That's the way Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So may I ask you, where is your treasure? I mean, what's the one thing you want? that you need, that, that you value above everything else? I mean, what are you constantly seeking? What doors or what door are you constantly knocking on? Now, it probably isn't one door, is it? No, no, we're, we tend to be people who knock on many doors. We, we seek many things. I mean, we're, we're knocking on the door of material success. Because we want enough physical treasure to buy the comforts and the pleasures of this life. And we're knocking on the door of some career or calling because we don't just want money. We want to do something meaningful, something that really counts. And most of us are always knocking on the door of other human hearts because we want someone to love us. To, to admire us, to be devoted to us, perhaps as long as we both shall live. And oh, oh yes, yes, we're knocking on the door of religion too, because we think that's important. But, but imagine having one thing, something, someone, so wonderful, so beautiful, so soul-satisfying, that, that nothing else seemed to matter. At least nothing else mattered nearly so much. I mean, you, you can imagine that, can't you? I mean, even if it's not quite been your experience. I mean, that's the stuff of which love stories are made. It's, it's the stuff of which heroes and martyrs are made. People who are willing to give their lives for one great devotion. And the message of Psalm 27 is that David has found his one thing. The, the one thing that makes his life worth living. The, the one thing he treasures above all else. And this one thing is the greatest antidote to the cancer of worry and fear that he has ever found. In fact, it's only true and lasting cure. Because David's treasure is the living God. The, the beauty of God, verse 4. That the face of God, verse 8, the truth of God, verse 11, and yes, also the help and the protection of God. But we miss the whole point unless we understand that it is the person of God David seeks. It, it is the person David desires. It's the person he loves. Because the face, that, that's a word picture. And the face is, is the picture of the gateway into the inner being. That the face is the great image of personal intimacy. And in the face of God, David has found everything he ever wanted. Everything he ever needed. Even protection from his enemies. And, and so David's one thing, his great treasure... 
has become what he trusts in. And that's the way it often is with treasures. I mean, we, we turn to our treasures to make us happy. We depend upon our treasures to feel secure. We expect our treasures to make our life worth living. That's why we treasure them. And that's why our treasures are what we trust our life to. And how sad it is when our treasure is money. A dollar bill. When our idols are made by human hands with mouths that do not speak, eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, without a heart to satisfy any human soul. You see, there's only one treasure that can be fully and finally trusted. One treasure that, that can bear the full weight of our lives, both now and in eternity. One treasure that is greater than all our desires and stronger than all our fears. Do, do you remember the story of Elijah and his servant in 2 Kings chapter 6? I, I've told it before. The, the prophet had been helping the king of Israel defeat the Arameans by revealing their hidden positions through prophetic revelation. Not exactly fair, is it? So the king of the Arameans exasperated decides that he's going to end this once and for all. So he sends a, a troop of soldiers to descend on the village of Dothan, where the prophet lives. And early in the morning, Elisha's servant, he opens the door and he goes out to, to get water, and he sees them. He sees an army of soldiers on horses and in chariots, literally surrounding the city. And he drops his water pail and he runs inside. And he says, Elisha, Elisha, there's an army outside. What are we going to do? And Elijah simply says, fear not. Those with us are more than those with them. <laughs> and the servant doesn't say anything, but I'm sure he is thinking, are you crazy? <laughs> I mean, there are two of us and there's an army out there. So Elijah prays, Lord, open his eyes. And when the servant looks the second time, he sees that the hills are alive. Not with the sound of music, <laughs> but, but with heavenly horsemen and chariots of fire. So what was the difference between Elijah and his servant? The, the difference between Elijah and all the people in the village of Dothan? Well, Elijah saw the chariots of fire. But why? How? Well, Elijah saw the chariots of fire. Because he had been seeking the face of God all the days of his life until the person of God and the power of God was more real to him than any person or any power on the surface of this earth. And that's the way it was with David. When the, when the armies of Israel cowered in the presence of the giant Goliath, this shepherd boy named David, he steps forth and he cries, who is this Philistine? Who dares to defy the armies of the living God? And to Goliath, he shouts, You come to me with sword and javelin, but I come against you in the name of God Almighty, who will deliver you into my hands this day. You know, sometimes we wonder, why do we stumble and fall in the day of trouble? 
Why do we shake with fear? And why are we overcome with worry? Well, if you want to be fearless on the day of battle, if you want to be able to see the chariots of fire, then you must spend a lifetime seeking and savoring the goodness, the beauty, the truth of God. I mean, before David could face Goliath, he spent years in the wilderness of Judea with his God, seeking his face, singing of his beauty, experiencing his power and his provision. And before Moses could face Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the surface of the earth, and boldly declare, let my people go. He met the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a burning bush. Seeking God it is a habit of the heart that takes years to bear fruit. I mean, it's like a marriage or any deep relationship. It takes time and effort to know someone well, to, to, to be able to read their face, to understand their words, to even hear the inflections in their voice, especially when that someone is the invisible and eternal triune God. Which brings me to the second and final word David gives to those who face fearful situations. I mean, the first word is seek. Seek the face of God. The second word is wait. The final verse in Psalm 27. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. For some reason, it appears, God takes his time. He takes his time to show his face. He takes his time to overcome our fears. And God's time is not always our time. I mean, if I were God, terrible thought, I know. But if I were God, I'm not so sure I would have made Moses wait in the wilderness 40 years until he was 80 years old before appearing in that burning bush and sending him to rescue the people of Israel. I'm not sure I would have made David wait that long either, watching sheep as he grew up in the wilderness, hiding from Saul after he'd been anointed, hiding from Saul in the desert. And I'm not so sure I would have taken this long to provide a senior pastor for Park Street Church. <laughs> or to reveal to me what he wants me to do with the rest of my life. See, I'm not sure, so sure I would take that long to rescue the perishing, to relieve the suffering, to judge the wicked and bless the just. But I'm not God. And the mysteries of the divine waiting are hidden in the mind and heart of God alone. But two things I believe I can say. The first is that waiting for God provides time for seeking. See, God takes his time. And as we wait, we seek. And I dare say, if God didn't make us wait, many of us would never seek him. As Bernard of Clairvaux reminded us centuries ago, that there are stages of love in the journey with and to God. 
And we all begin, and unfortunately, many of us remain in the stage where we are loving God for our own sake. That is, for the blessings and the benefits which we receive from God. In fact, we're shocked and rather disappointed when God doesn't bless us the way we thought he would. And sometimes, as a result, we even begin to doubt his existence. And perhaps we should. Because the God who lives for us isn't the real God. He doesn't exist, even if that's the God we have constructed in our minds whom we worship. You see, what's best for our souls and what is more true to reality is passing into the stage where we learn to love God for his own sake, not because of what he gives to us, but for the glory and the beauty of who he is. And waiting for God creates a space for seeking and finding this deeper, more soul-satisfying love. Because waiting weans the human heart. I have stilled and quieted my soul, David sings in Psalm 131, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, it is my soul within me. In other words, like a child who is now content to rest in his mother's love without crying out and demanding his mother's milk. But so often, we're like crying babies, seeking what God has to give us more than we are seeking the giver of all good things. We're focused on the father's hand, not his face. Mother's breast, not her heart. Sometimes we don't even stop and thank him or praise his glorious name for all that he gives us. And so often we fail to peer beyond all the good things that God gives to God himself. As if God himself were not more good and beautiful than everything and everyone in his good creation. So we must be weaned. Weaned from a hundred lesser loves. And waiting for God is the weaning process. Now, this is a, this is a rather personal moment that I'm about to share. But I think you should hear it. I mean, one day a few short years back, I was sitting out on our screen porch in uh, our home back in Pennsylvania. That screen porch was my favorite place for quiet times. And like yesterday in Boston, it, it was a foggy morning. Usually I could look out and see rolling hills in the distance, about a half mile away, but not, not this morning. They were, they were densely covered in fog. And I was, I was wrestling with God. You see, it had been a couple years since we left our church in Mechanicsburg to, to start a new phase in life. And I thought it was going to be a season in which I would focus not on leading a particular church, but, but training and encouraging the next generation of pastors in, in, to lead their churches. And for two years, while I taught 
adjunct at several seminaries. I sought a permanent position. I applied for one job after another, and I experienced more rejection in those two years than I had experienced in the entirety of my life before. And that's not an exaggeration. So that morning, I was wrestling with God. God, what are you doing? I mean, you, you, you led us to leave West Shore, didn't you? When everything was going so well. And you brought us into this wilderness, like this fog all around, and I can't see anything. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know where we're going. I don't, I don't see any future. I mean, is there a future? Or am I like that church in Ephesus, that pastor, you, you've removed his lampstand. Have you lifted the calling off of my life? And while I was crying out to God in this way, I, I opened my eyes. And the fog was everywhere. I mean, it, it had rolled in from the hills, and it was so close, I could almost touch it. I, I couldn't even see our backyard. And, and that fog was a picture of where I was at that moment. I mean, I was in the dark. And suddenly, this shaft of sunlight shone through the clouds right into the space. And I heard these words. Am I enough? Something very good had been taken away from me. Something I loved. I mean, something I thought I needed to make my life worth living. My pastoral work. I was being weaned. Weaning never feels good. And in the middle of it, my father in heaven was asking me if he was enough, even if he never gave that back to me. My honest reply, I know you should be. I really want you to be. But honestly, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Without a doubt, Jesus Christ was the most fearless man who ever walked the face of this earth. A man who set his flint, his face like flint, toward Jerusalem, knowing full well that the death awaited him there. A man who marched into the temple precincts, whipped in hand, turning over the tables of the money changers and driving them out, knowing that the powers that be would have to do something a man who took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Who took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, a man who literally sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane under so much stress because he knew what was about to happen. And yet he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. And fearlessly, he faced the Sanhedrin who condemned him. He, 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 he faced the soldiers who mocked and beat him. He, he faced the Roman governor who threatened him and made him look rather small. And then Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, 
praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I mean, behold the man upon the cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. I mean, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make this wretch his treasure. I mean, behold the face that casts out every fear. The face of God in Jesus Christ. The, the face of sovereign, sacrificial, self-giving love. The most beautiful, the most glorious, the most holy and fearless face the world has ever known. Am I enough? My God once asked me. Yes. Yes. You are more than enough. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. And while you wait, seek his face with all your heart. The only face which can satisfy our every desire. The only face which can conquer every fear. The face of God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, open our eyes to behold your face. In your mercy, draw us toward your face and change us. Awaken in us the certainty that only you can fulfill our greatest desires and the certainty that, that in your will we do not need to fear anyone or anything. In Jesus' name, amen.